All right, so just a little background, if, if uh, you need it. We are, uh, we've been covering Isaiah for quite a bit, and it's so important, I think, when you do a Bible study to start at the beginning and consider the whole as you study each of the individual parts so that you have the right context. But by and large, what Isaiah is, is dealing with is providing hope to the remnant, which is going to be a very small remnant, and uh, condemning the nation as a whole and, and warning them of impending judgment that's coming from the Assyrians. And we know in history that the Assyrians did come, and they wiped out the ten northern tribes, never to be seen again, and, um, and harassed and butchered the southern tribes for a long time until God finally um, saved them with a miracle in the night with an angel. And so, and then it's, of course, the remaining people, a smaller group now, that were eventually taken off into Babylon by the Babylonians. And so it's just pruning and pruning and pruning. God's people are apostatizing. They're leaving the faith, and God is engaged in a dramatic pruning. But the remnant is still there. There's, there's folks in, in churches, little people, nobody knows their names, and Isaiah is sort of like the, the prophet from God in this particular season. And he's trying to communicate, uh, God's communicating through Isaiah to the people about how to live in in these sorts of times. And I do think there's quite a bit of a parallel with our country. Our, all of the West is apostatizing, breaking apart, and God is judging us, but there is a remnant. Make sense? And I do think there will be a pruning, and we have to take the, the messianic hopes that we find here in Isaiah and apply them to ourselves. And we've already seen two major messianic hopes. One was Emmanuel, and, um, and today we're going to see another one of the major messianic prophecies that gives the remnant hope for the future so that they can know the future. It's nice to know the future, isn't it? You know, sometimes I wish I knew the future. That would certainly make it uh, possible for me to not have to have faith. Um, all that could be alleviated if he just tells us the, fu- the future, right? Like in every bit of detail, that would be amazing. But he doesn't. But he does give us a, the general trajectory and a general idea so that we have enough for our faith to hold on to. Make sense? And so that's, uh, that's what's going on here. He's giving the remnant a, a broad general outline of the future so that they aren't crushed by their, their doubts and fears. Make sense? All right. Not that they don't have doubts and fears, but they won't be crushed by them. So this particular passage of Scripture has several different very uh, controversial uh, views on what it means, all right? And we've been through this many times, but some people haven't been here as long as others, so I'll just review real quick. Some people believe what we're about to read is not going to happen and will never happen until after Jesus comes back a second time. Make sense? When he comes back a second time ends human history, he will, they believe, set up a earthly government with a, a bureaucratic administration that rules the world, and then these things will take place, okay? And, uh, and, and then another group believes that these things don't happen on earth right now, but are happening in heaven, sort of spiritually and figuratively now, so that none of these things are to be expected in history or on the earth, but we kind of expect them in our hearts and among us. You know what I mean? Like among us, the lion lays down with the lamb and we get along sort of like, sort of like that. That's what they believe. 
And um, then you got a third group, which full disclosure, I belong to with, you know, all the respect for all the other guys. There's good people on all sides of this. It is very, it's very confusing. Doing eschatology is very complex and requires you to have the whole Bible in your brain, comparing and contrasting all the verses. And it was only since uh, a few decades ago that we started getting computers and AI that can actually do this quickly. And so I I believe the future is bright when it comes to getting along with these views because the computers are pumping out models and, and comparing and contrasting verses. And it is just making things very, very clear for a lot of people there if if you get a a commentary on eschatology the book of revelation the book of daniel the book of ezekiel these passages in isaiah you you got to get some old ones but you got to get some of the ones that have been written in the last 30 years especially the last 10 20 years because of all the ai and i don't even know maybe we'll talk about it later i don't even know uh exactly how ai does that but it's uh when you can sit down on your computer and you can put in a verse And then you can click a button and all the other verses related to it are right there on your screen. You know, I mean, mean, imagine if Charles Spurgeon would have had that or John Calvin. But no, they were just in a dusty library, just going through books and and getting like one tenth what we can get in a push of a button. And then not just that, every word in that verse, you can click and it'll show every place that verse, that word is used in the whole Bible. It's just, it's amazing. So we're making strides. I believe that the church, and I'm going to show you why I believe this, the church is going to get along on all these things eventually. We're all going to, we're going to get it all figured out. It's just going to take, you know, two or 3,000 years. I don't know. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we can get it. Yeah, well, the church has to repent. Yeah, that's a good point. That might, that might take a, a little while. So this third, this third position is that these things that we're about to read are currently happening, have been happening since Jesus came the first time, and are continuing to gradually happen in this world so that the future is bright. Now, everyone believes the future is bright, but we mean the future before the end of human history. Make sense? That's, that's what I believe. And, um, and so when we read this, just, you know, I'm not really going to do my best to tell you what all the, the wrong people think. Now, I'm... <laughs> But uh, I'm just going to tell you what, you know, I think is the correct interpretation. And I will tell you, though, that I've, I've held to the wrong beliefs, and I've taught through these with the wrong beliefs. You know, so you still get good stuff out of it, just not as good, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. And so um, just real quick, one more thing introduction-wise. The, the view that all of this is happening now in these verses and it's been happening since Jesus came, and it's going to continue to happen. That view was the dominant Christian view throughout the entire West the whole time, in my opinion, um, until about the 181900s. And in the 1900s, another view, the view that this is not possible, these things can't happen, which I would say is more of a negative view. All the views are positive in some sense. We all go to heaven in the end. But as far as on a scale, this is more negative. Things aren't going to, to gradually get better in this world. And when Jesus comes back, that's going to be, okay, that's when these things are going to happen. That view became the dominant view um, in the 1900s. Are you all tracking with all these things? When that became the dominant view, that things are not getting better down here, 
as John MacArthur says, because he holds this view, down here we do not win. We lose. That's the, that's the position, down here. We all win in the end. Everyone agrees on that. But he says we lose right now. That's the dominant position since the 1900s. When that happened, though, all the Reformed people, they didn't switch to that view. They switched to the view that believes it's happening now, but only in heaven. See what I'm saying? So around the 1900s, these hopes, the church did this, pushed it into the future and pushed it up into the, heavenly, into the heavenlies. And in my opinion, that has been a very bad move and is left down here hopeless. Make sense? Now, they would not say that it's totally hopeless down here. They would believe that there's intermittent hope for the church and for your heart. See what I mean? But not for the nations, certainly not for politics, etc. <clears throat> All right. Good, good. <laughs> so my view is going to be coming through on this, and, it, and, uh, and it's also the view of the pilgrims and the Puritans and Jonathan Edwards and William Carey and uh, Robert Livingston and John Calvin. And, Martin, and all the cool people. I've got to use every trick in the book to persuade people. Whatever, whatever works for you. All right. So here we go. Verse 1. <clears throat> this is the prophecy of the Messiah to come. In the midst of apostasy, judgment is coming. He, he whispers to the remnant, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So, the roots of Jesse. Now, Jesse's a man, you understand? And Isaiah mentions Jesse here, not David, which is interesting, because David has been dead a long time. So, this is Isaiah. He's in the time of... Isaiah, Plato, Aristotle, I think. And, uh, and David was in the time of, like, uh, Achilles... <laughs> and uh, and the Trojan Wars and the giants fighting with Jupiter and Zeus and Aphrodite, thousand years apart. Okay, so David's been dead a long time. This the world is is different. Isaiah is is could have said, and it would have made it sense for him to say, a shoot's going to come from David. But the the hopes of the Davidic lineage are are kind of windling down. People don't have hope, and he says Jesse instead. And I think that's fascinating because Jesse was a peasant nobody. David was a peasant boy too. God took down the giant with a, with a surprise victory by a peasant boy. And, uh, but he grew to be a great king. And Isaiah takes us all the way back to that original promise and says, no, it's going to be from this nobody peasant, Jesse. And, and obviously I think that's foreshadowing the fact that Jesus would come out of Mary and Joseph's household, out of Nazareth. And does anyone know what Nazareth means? It means Nazar. It means branch or shoot. And that's the prophecy right here. Jesus had to be born in branch. That's the literal name of the town, which we actually have a town called Branch a few miles down the road. Jesus had to be born in branch to fulfill the prophecy that a branch would come forth. So, or out of the branch. Very, very interesting. And, uh, of course... This uh, is the stump is the pruning and the judgment of all of Israel. They're going to be judged, but a little tiny shoot is going to come up filled with Holy Spirit life, and it's going to bear fruit and bear fruit and bear fruit. And if you know the New Testament, 
keep growing and growing and growing until it covers the whole world. Amen? That's a beautiful prophecy. We've spoken on this before. But has anyone ever seen that? Have you all ever had a stump in your yard and it, and it was still alive? And that was really irritating? Because you're the enemy of that tree, right? That tree is your enemy. You're trying to get rid of this thing, and you chop it down. And then its little shoot comes up. Ugh. That's when he says, I'm going to chop down the tree through the Assyrians, but I'm not going to remove the life from it. It will uh, shoot forth life in the future. Verse 2, this Messiah, this anointed one, this stump, this branch of Jesse is going to be unique among all peoples on the earth. He's going to have unique gifts. And it's in verse 2, and the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit of the Lord. Now you do need to understand that in this time in Isaiah, they don't have a fully, they haven't written any systematic theology books on the doctrine of the Trinity. The, the revelation builds over time. You understand what I mean? I th- and I think the reason why God wasn't so upfront with the Trinity and his nature as a triune God was because he knew they would immediately start worshiping, worshiping them as separate gods because they were struggling with polytheism. They were just trying to get the concept that there is a holy other God, not a bunch of many gods. Once you get that concept that there's an other God, then he reveals to the church more and more about his nature. So you can see the revelation of the Trinity uh, build throughout the whole Bible. Make sense? All right? And that was necessary for him to do that to prepare for Jesus coming. But the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Who's the him there? The shoot. The shoot. This, this human who's going to come. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this is what he's going to have. These are going to be his attributes. When, first of all, let's just take this verse one at a time. When did the Spirit of the Lord rest upon him? At the baptism, right? The Spirit of the Lord anointed him there at the baptism to equip him for his ministry so that he could accomplish all that he was called to do. And if Jesus the man needs the Holy Spirit, how much more do we, right? And we are. If we have a calling and we all have a calling, he will give us the, the gifts required to accomplish those callings. Make sense? And look at what he gives Jesus. He gives him first wisdom. He gives him the Holy Spirit of wisdom, which is another way of saying wisdom. Right? Because wisdom comes from God and God alone. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is a very interesting thing. And the kids know about this because they're growing in wisdom at school every day. And hopefully we all are. But who here knows how to use a saw? Anybody? And we all know virtually how to use a saw. You could use a saw and not chop your arm off. Right? Miss Paula, you could use a saw. Right? Yeah, hammer, screwdrivers. Who here can use a drill? Everybody. That's, that's good. You have, some, you have some knowledge. You have some info. You have some facts. Right? But who here could craft a beautiful piece of furniture that would be considered a work of art? Just Kevin, right? <laughs> Not many of us, right? Not many of us. We have knowledge, very basic, but we don't, we don't yet have wisdom, which is the skill and the, the craftsmanship to take facts and information and knowledge and bring them together into beauty. 
So you can apply this in all of your life. We all know the basic functions of life, right? Eating, drinking, sleeping, and we all are existing. But only people with wisdom can live a beautiful life, right? Only we, we all have hard decisions to make in our life, am I right? And you can write a pros and a cons list. You can gather all the, the information you possibly can from counselors. You can get all the facts straight. But only people with wisdom can take all of that and make a beautiful decision, make the right decision. You see what I mean? And if, it, if most of us can't use a saw to make something beautiful, I sure hope most of us can at least make some beautiful decisions and, 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 and have a beautiful life to some degree. But it does, if, if, you, if you're with me so far, it does prove that it takes time to get there. That's, that's why you don't let your children decide how they're going to live. You know, they, as they get older, they get the freedom to make more and more decisions, right? And that's because they, they can use a saw, right? Maybe. But they, they're not a craftsman yet. They don't have the wisdom to, to take all of the factors in their life together. They don't have the self-control. They don't have the, the skill, the craftsmanship to make all the best decisions. That's why parents are supposed to make decisions for their babies and for their toddlers and for their, and for their teens. And as they get older, you try to share wisdom. Does it make sense? But that takes, uh, that takes the Holy Spirit of God. And frankly, not everybody has it. And some people have more than others. Amen? Now, who has God given you in your life? Don't say pastors. That's the correct answer. Lord willing, right? <clears throat> but is there anybody else? Don't say it out loud. Anybody else in your life where you say, I have to make a decision about this, I go to this person. Decision about this, I go to this person. I want to know how to live a beautiful life in this area, I go to this person. You've got to have those people in your life. That's the, one of the, the blessings of being in a church is some people can craft beautiful furniture. They have wisdom in that area. Some people can uh, have wisdom in parenting, wisdom in employment and business, wisdom in personal and interpersonal relationships. All that comes together the gifts of the, of the Spirit, all it comes together and unifies us in the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of wisdom. And all of that was given to Jesus in his, in his God-man status. That's amazing, right? So if you've ever wondered why the Sadducees and the Pharisees couldn't hang with him, right? He just had, had way more than they did, right? And, or if you knew, he always knew the right question to ask. And he always knew the plan of attack, and you can see it if you read the Gospels. He's telling them, don't, don't say anything yet. How many times have you said something you wish you hadn't have said it? Right? Lack of wisdom, right? Or wish you would have said something, but you didn't say something. Lack of wisdom. Jesus never had that. He always said exactly what he should say, never what he shouldn't say, and he, it was always at the perfect time. Isn't that something? And he knew exactly who to pick as his disciples, how many to pick, and what particular strategy to embark in to do what he needed to do. Perfect wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Right. Isn't that something? He also has the spirit of counsel. The spirit of counsel. <clears throat> and he has might as well. And every, I, could, I could go into each and every one of those. I I'm not going to do that much on all of them. But he is the almighty God. He is mighty. And that means not only does he have the wisdom to know exactly what to do, he has the power to accomplish it. And all of that was given to him. He also has the spirit of knowledge, which means he has a perfect, intimate, knowledge of God. He knows exactly who God is. 
and he knows him at a deep personal way, in a deep personal way, and the fear of the Lord, which means when you have the Holy Spirit of God, you want to please God more than anything, right? That, with every decision you make, with everything you do in your life, whatever it is, your utmost priority must be, I have to please God in this, as opposed to what? Your man, as opposed to, and, and the hard thing is, it's never just man, vague man. Do what? Well, it's, yeah, you and you're all your fears, but then, but then also all the people around you. And it's usually like your spouse or, or your friends. And that's a bummer because they want you to live in the fear of them. They want you to be concerned about their concerns. And you're concerned that they're concerned about all your concerns, right? You're not trying to upset them or anything, but you, want to, you have to put God first. Jesus always put God first. Everything he did, it, it was just about what, what does God want ultimately. Isn't that something? That is what we need. That's the spirit of God, and he gives it to us as well um, as we pray and work for it. All right, verse 3, let's move on. And his delight, that's literally his, his sense of smell, that's literally his smell, his smelling abilities, shall be in the fear of the Lord. He can smell what pleases God. Isn't that, I think that's neat right there. Another pastor actually said this, and I'm borrowing it from him, which is mostly everything. But <clears throat> I, just take it, I just take lumps of wood and nails and glue and just put them together into talks. That's how I do it. Yeah, I think, I hope. So <laughs> um, he can smell the fear of the Lord. You know, he, he knows what pleases God. He's like, smell it out. He can sniff it. And that is cool. That's pretty cool. It, we might, I think we might call that intuition, maybe, or that comes with, a, uh, that comes with age, right? Can a, can a cop smell a rat? You know what I mean? Uh, police officers, they have, they, what are they, you know what they call it, right? They, it's a gut. They have a gut. And if you're like, I need you to articulate exactly why you pointed out that person in the crowd, and they would be, it would, they would probably have to take a long time to get to the point where they could tell you what it was about that person. You know what I mean? But they have a gut. They, they can smell a rat. And, uh, and as parents, um, we, our sense of smell is better than our kids. Pastors, God willing, their sense of smell is better than their parishioners, right? Um, the older, Lord willing, all things being equal, their sense of smell is better than the younger. Older women, better than younger women. Older men, better than younger men. See what I'm saying? You see how God has set it up in community so that we all have a sense of smell. And we can smell, that's off, right? I, that's it. Even if we're not all able to see it perfectly or hear it perfectly or articulate it perfectly, we can sniff it out a little bit. But Jesus knows exactly the plan, how to do the plan, has the power to do the plan, I mean, and knows exactly what pleases God perfectly. And the spirit, and that spirit, which in, was anointed to Jesus, is the spirit of Christ that he gives to us. And we enjoy it individually and as a group. And honestly, if you don't have the group, forget about it. Right? You've got, you got to have the group. You got to, because the, the Bible says the spirit doles out his gifts unequally so that you need each other. Does that make sense? That's how he draws the body together. All right, uh, and his delight, this is verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he, his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. 
Like he's got full and total intuition and knowledge, smell of God's will. Verse four, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. So he will make rulings and and issue decrees in perfect righteousness and justice. Amen. And he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. That's the Christians. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. All right, so let's go back to our original point. It's when are these things taking place? So we have this shoot, the Messiah, right? And he has all of this incredible Holy Spirit gifts and power, right? And then you read the next thing. He will decide disputes. He will deal with the poor with righteousness. He will make decisions and decrees with equity for the meek of the earth. That's the Christians. When, though? See, that's the debate. Is he doing that now from the throne in heaven? You know, do we, do we believe that he is ruling with justice for us, for the meek of the earth? That's a nickname for Christians, by the way. Right? Or do, are we saying, one day, one day, um, come, Lord, quickly, because we can't wait for you to start doing this for us down here. Yeah, it's a big difference. It's a big difference. Or do we say, that? well, that's not true down here on earth, so to speak. It, you know, a little here, a little there, but not in any predictable sense. But it is true in heaven. When you go to heaven, all of those things is true. You see the difference, how eschatology really does change your perspective and your worldview in life. You have a question? Now you do, though, right? Well, okay. Yeah, that's, well, that's the whole point. You, you read, you kept reading, or you read it here? Yes, that's, you're, you're seeing exactly what I'm saying, that when he came the first time, it started. See what I mean? And, 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 <laughs> and, and it, and it continues to this day. Even more so because he said to his disciples, he said, it is necessary for me to go to the Father. It's better for you that way so that I can send the Spirit. The Spirit that went on him is one human. I mean, he, you know, it takes a little while to get around the world, right? I mean, you need a lot of hands. And, and you say, well, he's God. Yes, but he's also a man. And God delights in participating in his rule with his children. And so he ascends to heaven and is given the spirit by, has the spirit by, from God the Father. And then from the throne with full authority over all the earth, he sends the spirit, pours it out on the church. So all of this stuff comes down on the church. And so that's why we anticipate victory and growth and, and success. Because we have that very same spirit poured out on us. And it's all over the globe. So, yes, that's what's happening. He will, and, and, and that is by the Spirit of Christ. That's right. That's right. This does bring up a good point. If he's judging the poor, by the way, that doesn't mean condemning the poor. It means ruling over the poor of the earth and the Christians of the earth, technically. And, and, uh, and he decides, how exactly is he doing these, these things? Is it just him up there? He's doing it through the church, through you and, through you and me in our various administrations. When you make decisions in righteousness at work, that's Jesus. When, when you 
um, are caring for the oppressed and the poor, and you are standing up to evil. That's what Jesus did, and that's what, that's what you do in the same spirit. So, you know, as the song says, we are the hands and feet of Christ. Amen? That's why it's good for us to know what, what righteousness and justice actually is by studying the Bible, right? But now here to uh, a really important part. He strikes the earth, verse 4, with the rod of his mouth. Very important. I think this is fascinating. So by what means does he rule and judge and decide and strike, which is a, a, a leadership metaphor, but also it can be good and bad, but it's, it's probably bad right here. But by what means does he do it? It's his word. See, this is a major difference. God does not exercise his will on this earth and bring about his desires with tanks and swords and guns. Now, he does use evil people, and he uses righteous people that are given those things, exercising righteousness. Is there a righteous and just way to use a gun? Yes. Those are the ministers of Christ. Is there an evil way to do it? Yes. This is, it's being very specific. It's saying with the rod of his mouth. It's a metaphor. And it says, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. So this is not for us to go around killing people, right? It's by his breath. It's by his word. When does his word go forth and do these things? How? By what means? Who is his mouthpiece? All of us. All of us. All the Christians. When we speak the word of God, it is Christ through us exercising rule and dominion and judging righteously in the earth. You understand that? Now, y'all know these things already, but hopefully this helps you articulate it a little bit better. All right? Um, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. That means, that's like, if you see a dude with a black belt, you know, I'm a bad mama jama is his belt. You know, he, know, he knows exactly how to take people out. He knows how to do it. Jesus has a black belt in justice. And, and by the way, the word righteousness in English is the same as the word justice in English. It's the same word. It means the same thing. And so he knows exactly how to do justice. He knows when our government is evil. He knows when our, we're evil, right? He knows. And faithfulness is the belt of his loins. Same thing. What else is his belt? So his, his whole, when he walks into the room and you're like, dang, that's justice. And faithfulness now that's good justice for the evil right or justice against the evil on our behalf on the righteous's half but also faithfulness what does that word mean it means he keeps his promises which he has already given to us so when he walks into the room as king he's got the belt and you can know justice will be served and he will keep all of his promises that is the characteristic of this messiah's reign the branch that comes from the stump is ruling the world in righteousness and in um, faithfulness and in perfect wisdom and might. And is that now or is that in the future? Big question, right? When did this prophecy start? When he started the prophecy, at what event in Jesus' life does, the, does verse 1 start? This is birth. See, that's what Tori was pointing out. The first verse, verse 1, is the shoot comes out. And then, then the next thing that happens, the Holy Spirit is given to him. 
Then the next thing happens. He begins to rule and reign in the world. You see the timeline. You see what I'm saying? All right. Now, let's move on. Um, <clears throat> I want to I talk about this. This is a little excursus. I think it's, this is somewhat relevant. But um, how, how is, like, what is, what is culture? What is culture? What do you think? It's hard to define. It's like... The milieu, the milieu, that's right. It's, uh, how about, the, I'm going to say this, what are cultural artifacts? That's easy. Uh, sculptures, televisions, music, fads, clothing, you know, that's the stuff that comes out of the soil. Culture is like uh, horticulture. It's like the soil. It's the air we breathe. It's our culture. And is the culture here different than the culture in other places? Yeah, you better believe it, right? And, uh, but here's the question. The cultural artifacts, like an iPhone, or a song, or a, a, a law, the things that come out of the culture, that comes from the culture, comes from the soil, right? But where does the culture come from? What creates culture? It, the cult. That's right. Now, don't freak out. Um, <laughs> it's fr- that's a, it originates from a Latin word. And uh, if you speak Romanian or, or Spanish, you know that this, it means, cult means technically religion. That's what it means. Okay? So what makes the soil, that, what makes the culture? The religion. So if you have an Islamic religion, it will produce an Islamic culture. Okay? And it will then create Islamic artifacts, Islamic buildings, Islamic books, Islamic literature stuff like that and and you can and we maybe we'll talk, you'll tell me more about this but if you have a sunni islam and you have a, a shia islam it's going to create different cultures different cultures and um, if you have a hindu religion it's going to create a hindu culture if you have a christian religion it creates a christian culture that creates christian cultural artifacts and when our world the west was very christian had a very powerful Christian religion that created Christian culture and Christian cultural artifacts. What were some, what, how would you rate those particular artifacts? Let's go back to the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, um, even back 14th and 15th centuries. Think, think of the, the, the art, the, the technology, the, the political science, cultural creations that comes out of the West, representative republic. The very concept that slavery is bad, at least uh, unjust slavery is bad. Where does that come from? Religion creates a culture, and then the culture eventually changes. You see what I'm saying? Now compare that to the cultural artifacts we're creating today in America. I think recently someone was famous for putting a toilet in the center of a room and calling it art, and it was something like, I can't remember what, his point was that it's all crap or something. I don't know. The recent story where the janitor threw away a whole garbage bin because it was literally, he didn't garbage. He just threw it away. He thought it was trash. But you go back a few hundred years when the population was Christian, the population was more Christian, and we created things like Handel's Messiah and cathedrals. See, something's going on there. 
Now, of course, we've apostatized, so our cultural artifacts are less Christian and less just and less beautiful and less good and less true. That's happening more and more and more. All right, so just a quick review. Where does the cultural artifacts come from? The culture. If you want to change laws, you first have to change culture. See what I'm saying? If you want to change the culture, though, you got to first change the religion. But what is religion? It, it is basically how you believe you should please God, right? And you, your religion is formed by words, okay? Wor- words come at you, and you put them together into sentences, and then later people put them together into systematic categories, and they teach those categories to you. And, when, and that teaching we call in the Christian church, what do we call those? We call those catechism or doctrine. The word doctrine means teaching. So words organized, impacted, and given to other people create their religion, right? so, which is why it's so important in Christian education because your kid's religion is being formed because it's words all day. And not just random words, blah, 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 but bl- words that have a doctrine, that are creating doctrines and are being systematically taught. You see what I'm saying? All right. I find this super fascinating because how does God create the world? Word and light. And yet he, is, and he has created this world, and it still happens this way, that through his word, through us, Doctrines are conveyed, truths are conveyed, which forms religion of an individual and a group, which then forms, which forms culture, which forms cultural artifacts. So, based on all of that, if Jesus' words are going over the whole globe, empowered by the Spirit of God, as he promises, then we can deduce from that that there will, over a, a gradual period of time, be an increase of Christian religion and Christian culture and Christian cultural artifacts. And uh, anyone know the nickname for that end result? Christendom, which is another word. for It means Christ's kingdom or Christ's rule over the earth, Christendom. Another word for it is winning. All right, just saying. <laughs> yep, Winning. All we do is win, gradually though, gradually. One more polemical point, <clears throat> political correctness. Boo, political, what is political correctness? It is a force, it is a, a law, a, a system of ethics, maybe we call it a religion, that enforces on the population what words you can say and what words you can't say and, and how you should speak about certain things. Now do you see the power of political correctness? It is a different religion's ethics code being forced on the population so that we say different words. And different words create different doctrines that create different religion, that creates different culture. And that's why pastors must not be politically correct if they want to be faithful, if they want to keep their church from the false religions 
and therefore the crappy church culture of our modern world. You have to speak God's word, but you also have to blaspheme the political correctness gods. You must blaspheme them. And you must do it out loud in front of everyone in the church so that they know he just did that and he's not dead. Right? Now we can do it too. So we reconstruct with God's word or construct with God's word and deconstruct the philosophies of this world with God's word. And that, and that means being not politically correct. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? All this pronoun, all these pronoun wars, it's religion being spread because it's a culture war. It's a culture war. Y'all have heard about the culture wars, right? All the, what are the Christians' temptations? How do Christians all want to fight culture wars? Abdication, yes. Uh, being nice and making sure your language matches with the language of the world. And abdication and cultural suicide. Anything else? How else do we think that we should fight the culture wars? Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. But I mean, like uh, when there's uh, really bad cultural artifacts, like drag queen story hour, um, grooming children, mutilating children, we want to go to politics and pass a law. Yeah, we're, we're, we're fighting, we're swinging at windmills. You, the way to fight it is to start a Christian school and to spend all day putting words in the next generation, right? You understand what I'm saying? That is, it's a, it is a very, very important thing that we're doing here. And it's important to start churches where the word is proclaimed and the religions of this world are deconstructed so that more and more people can have Christ and Christ's culture and Christ's kingdom. All right. Amen. So now you know what all the word wars are about. They're actually coming for your faith and your throat. All right. <clears throat> One last thing on that. Is, is, I, did I lose all of y'all on that? I'm trying to just say the kind of the, he rules with the breath of his mouth. You see what I'm saying? That's how I think when it says he strikes the evil with the rod of his mouth, I think that's how it works. You see what I'm saying? That's the how. So I think it's cool to know that it, it puts a little, put a little flesh on just, yeah, he rules with his word. Well, what does that mean? He rules with his word through us. Make sense? Now, that's our kingdom that's spreading through word. But then there's another kingdom, Satan's kingdom. And Satan is an angel, a cherub to be precise, which is a type of angel. And angels, the word angel means messenger. What's the first thing that the messenger Satan did? Words in Eve's words. Doctrines. False doctrines into her which corrupted her, right? And she made a very bad decision, right? And she was naive, and Adam wasn't, what should have Adam, what Adam should have done? She had a man, God gave her a man. Husbands, this is on you right here, and dads. If God loves you, if you're a lady and God loves you, there is a man standing somewhere in your proximity adjacent from the forbidden fruit, okay? And, and there's a whisper coming from the forbidden fruit, and it's messages that are twisted. You understand what I'm saying? The dad and the, and the 
and the husband, and of course, ladies, you too, okay? I'm, you understand what I'm saying? Older women should be over there too. The whole church should be over here. Like, you know, like, hey, uh, that's a false message. This is a true message. See what I'm saying? So that Eve can grow in grace, which means farther away from that thing. Anyway, <laughs> grow in grace, baby. Grow in grace. All right. <clears throat> so I just think it's cool. Like Satan is a messenger and God rules with his word. It's a, the whole universe is a word, a war of words. Man, we, we can't stop here. When y'all are thinking about complaining because your kids have to read so much, I want you to download this lesson and listen to it again. This is why they have to read so much. We want our children to be the most articulate, um, well, well-read, doctrinally sound people in this, in this town, in the world, so that, we, so that we can build Christendom, so that we can win in Acadiana. We need more, tr- more soldiers, you understand what I'm saying? So that's, man, that's what's so important. So next time they're upset that they're having to study Greek word, right? <laughs> Writing word, reading word, speaking word, singing word. We are a word people. We are a people of the book, people of the word. That's why our school's like it is, right? So now in, in case you think, well, what about <clears throat> math? What about music? I would actually argue, and I still have to think about this, I would actually argue that that is a type of language as well that comes from God. Music is a language too. And uh, Pastor Scott could go up on that piano and he could send messages to you just with the music. You understand what I'm saying? And, uh, and I bet our, our math geniuses could communicate in math as well. Right? Or at least make, our, make AI speak to us, right? It's a... <laughs> it's... Math is a language, too. So it's just, it's, to me, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And let's see what the global effects will be of this war of, war, war, war of words. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, that's the Messiah, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Okay, you've got to follow the trajectory. What was verse 1? What happens first? Sprout. Root. Sprout. Verse 2, what's the next thing that happens? Spirit, anointed. Next, that's the baptism. Next thing that happens, rules and justice and righteousness with the word of his mouth. See what I'm saying? He's, he's doing it there. And now we see right here a signal. He gives a signal. So that's fascinating to me. In, in any war, and if you know anything about uh, war in the, in the past, there's chaos, there's confusion, right? You need marching orders. That's why in football you huddle after every play because everyone's brains are knocked loose and it's confusing. So okay, huddle, huddle, right? Um, Well, in war, you have to huddle so that you can get your marching orders, right? And you huddle at the ensign, at the, at the, uh, the standard. That's right. And so the way I picture this is as he rules in this world, he does place his ensign some people say it's the cross like he says when i am lifted up i will draw all men to mine that's kind of like an ensign and john calvin says not the cross he says it's something that's it's still it's all it's all it's still today it's then and today that uh, christ is still gathering his people to his ensign and they huddle up 
and they get their marching orders and go out. And that's a beautiful picture, I think. And <clears throat> if it is the cross, though, that, that works really well with my timeline here. So anyway, you know, it's this complicated. But of him shall the nations inquire. That's, the, that's all, the ethnic, all the ethnic groups in the world. When he hits that ensign with that spirit, the nations start coming. The word's going forth, rallying cry, and the nations are asking him and inquiring how to live. Verse 11, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant. In that day, in those days, he's also, not only are all the ethnic groups coming to him, he's going to extend his hand again. Look, to the Jews, to the remnant that remains of his people. And I think that's going to happen. It is happening now in history, but it's, I think it's going to happen much more in, as the future, future goes on. All right, pretty, pretty good stuff. Uh, let's just go down to um, verse 13 real quick. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, that's the northern kingdom, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. That's the southern kingdom. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. What was one of the most embarrassing things in the Old Testament? That Israel didn't get along, that they were divided. Their covenant people are divided. What an embarrassment. What an embarrassment. And he says one day, this day, and the next day, gradually over time, they will not be divided. You see what I'm saying? And now he's speaking specifically here of Jews, but in this day, where are the Jews? The Jews are in the church. I think, I think what this is saying, and we'd have to talk about it more, is that over time, we truly will become one holy, universal, united church. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Whatever it's called then, right? <laughs> yeah. By then, we'll finally say, okay, guys, since there's no more debate here, let's just all call it Christianity, right? <laughs> So I think that's amazing. That's why I said in the beginning, I think that eventually everyone will agree with me. But, you know, not in every detail, because, you know, we're all, we, none of us are perfect with this, but the general sense. That's why I think, that's why I'm not upset when people don't believe exactly like I do, because time's on my side, right? It's on their side, too. They just don't know it, all right? <laughs> so anyway, anyway, um, then verse 14 but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. This is victory. Over, over. These are metaphors, I believe, for the enemies of Israel, and there's victory going on. Verse 15, And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. Right, it's a, it's a picture of a second exodus that began when Jesus came and is people still streaming across, even still to this day. Amen? Not, this, this, this is not happening immediately and apocalyptically. It's happening like a mustard seed that grows gradually. Amen? Let me read what Jesus said about it. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. What is the seed? The word. That's right. He sleeps and rises 
night and day. And the seed eventually sprouts. Nights and days, seasons go by. And then a little sprout. And then it grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. See, it's gradual. And it's not all at the same speed. As the word is sown, it grows gradually in different places at different rates and in different times. <laughs> but when the grain is ripe, that means one day when it's all ready, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Right? Anyway, I hope that blesses y'all. Y'all have a great evening. Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, guys, real quick. Um, I'm going to put a bug in your ear. We're trying to hire a professional dance coach, um, Cajun dancing. I wanted to let that sit for a second. It just <laughs> Cajun dancing, I guess line dancing maybe, some ballroom. Yeah, and Stacy's already been talking to some people. All the fun Christian dancing, all the holy fun Christian dancing. And our, our, our campaign for this is Make Weddings Great Again, um, right? And so that's going to be on uh, later this fall on Friday nights. And from what we hear so far, it's going to be pretty cheap, not very expensive. But if you really, really want to do it and you can't afford it, just talk to us, okay? But it's for the whole family. So we, it's, honestly, it's really for the kids because we're only going to get so much wisdom, right? How much we're, we're going to learn a few steps, but ain't none of us going to be building any beautiful furniture out there. Maybe some of us, but the kids, when they get started young, every generation will actually be able to be the dancing church, right? We've been all kind of churches. We're going to be the dancing church and the happy church. So anyway, y'all just think about that and let me know what you think. Y'all have a good evening.